Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And in this episode, I'm talking to Sarah Hinlicky Wilson about Slovakia in Central Europe, including its complicated history places to visit for both culture and nature, and specialties of the region. So Slovakia only became an independent state in 1993, so it is less than 30 years old. We discuss borders and how strange it is that history draws lines on a map that don't necessarily represent the people who live within them. These layers of invasion and empire can shape lives for generations. We also talk about Sarah's travel background and how wherever she is, she longs for somewhere else. And we wonder together whether it comes from feeling unrooted somehow. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you'll know this is a topic I return to again and again, because it's my experience too. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Sarah today. Sarah Hinlicky Wilson is the author of memoir, poetry, and religious nonfiction. And today we're talking about I Am a Brave Bridge, an American girl's hilarious and heartbreaking year in the fledgling Republic of Slovakia. So, welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Joe. It's so exciting to be on your show. Oh, well, this is a very cool uh, place to talk about. But before we get into the book, you describe it as a story for anyone who is always homesick for somewhere else. And I love that. But what do you mean by that? And how does that manifest for you? I think all of us who are travelers have this experience happened to us after a certain point of time that like say suddenly it's springtime and instead of being appreciative of the springtime where you are you're like oh I remember what springs were like you know in this other place where you used to live or you once traveled and so you you just feel yourself yearning like oh if I could only be there this time of year or when the fall colors come or it's Christmas or some other holiday and you get to this point and I got to this point early in life of just being perpetually homesick because wherever I was I wasn't in that other place I think for me personally it was also exacerbated or developed by the fact that I moved around a lot when I was a kid as you can tell from my accent I'm an American Americans have a habit of moving around a lot. So I never really felt anchored in one place. And as a result, I think I became extra heightened in my sensitivity to any place that I went to and really wanted to just have that that genius loci, you know, that the feeling of the place that was so distinctive and not like anywhere else in the world. And so once I got into um, adulthood, as started with my Slovakia story, I've just been traveling all over like you have. And now it means that there's always somewhere that I wish I was, no matter where I am, no matter how great it is, I'm always homesick for somewhere else. And so I thought probably a lot of world travelers can really relate to that feeling. 
Yeah, and I know how you feel, but it's so interesting. You said Americans move around a lot. And uh, my experience in America has been very interesting because people always say to me, like, I'm obviously I'm in England right now and I've lived in different places. When I go to America, people say, oh, you're so lucky to have been to New York, for example, or <laughs> or New Orleans. And I'm like, well, you're in the same country. Why don't you just go there? And, so, and it's funny because I feel like there are these two types of Americans and a lot of Americans, actually, the, I thought the majority of Americans don't move around around and then there's mm. people like yourself and people who've been on this podcast who are travelers but I, I feel like there are these two types of Americans whereas you kind of just said there that everyone moves oh <laughs> you know that could be true there are probably Americans who both don't move in the sense of changing homestead and Americans don't move in the sense of like traveling to see their own country so mm. for myself it was definitely that my family picked up and went to another city or town to live many times in my childhood and I have very much in my adulthood as well. So for me, it's like, it's not having that sense of being really deeply anchored and rooted in a place. And I think there's something about that for Americans also, since the vast majority of us uh, do not have ancestors that come from the physical territory of North America, we are the children of immigrants. So there's always a sense that no matter how long we've been there, we're not really of there. We're, we're from somewhere else. And how do we relate to that other place? I don't know. Maybe I, I, I know I maybe romanticize it a bit for people who actually are really rooted, but maybe you have a different relationship to England as an English person, because you can, even if you don't literally know your lineage back hundreds of years, there's sort of a sense like, this is my, my land, I belong here. And I think Americans are much less likely to have that feeling. Ah, yes. Well, we're a conquered people, like the English <laughs> being just conquered by lots of people. And then of course we had an empire, but we lost it. So I think we're... <laughs> We're further on on the the empire than the US. You're still losing yours. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's a different kind of homelessness or unrootedness than what we have. Yeah. Uh, Oh, well, I could talk about that topic all day, but let's get into Slovakia. So first of all, where is Slovakia and why is its history so complicated? Okay, so Slovakia is in Central Europe. By some measures, it is the geographic heart of Europe. But I think there are many places that claim that because it depends really on where you decide Europe begins and ends. Uh, But it is south of Poland, north of Hungary, east of the Czech Republic and west of Ukraine. And yes, Slovakia used to be part of Czechoslovakia, but Czechoslovakia hasn't existed for almost 30 years now, folks. So don't make the (gasps) mistake of talking about it like it's still there. Wow. Yes, almost 30 years. Yep. So yeah, we're in uh, in 2023. It will be the 30th anniversary of the Velvet Divorce, as it's called. Also, Slovakia is not Slovenia. That is a former Yugoslav Republic down to the south next to Italy. Mm. So why is it so complicated? You mentioned Velvet Divorce there. Why does it have these issues in the history that still kind of resonate today? Yeah. So one thing that I, in writing my book, I had to get my mind around the history of Slovakia. And what I discovered very early on is that the nations that we know now seem like they must be inevitable and ancient, but in fact, they're all very much piecemeal put together. Like Germany and Italy were not United Nations like within themselves until the late 19th century. I mean, that's really recent. So what I discovered about Slovakia is that although Slavic peoples who we now identify as Slovaks have been there for something like 1500 years. The Slovaks, as we know them, emerged from being the northern 
territory of the kingdom of Hungary. And the kingdom of Hungary was a political unit, not an ethnic unit. So weird as it is, there was no Slovakia and no Hungary without the other country until basically the end of World War I. And at that point, both of them were part of the Austrian Empire, which was the heir of the Holy Roman Empire, which is the heir of the Roman Empire. So you can see there are all these like political, religious, ethnic realities all bundled up on top of each other. So Slovakia is only became its own independent nation in 1993 when it divorced from the Czechs. And the only reason it was ever attached to the Czechs is because when the Allies won World War I, they wanted to split up the Austro-Hungarian Empire that caused so much trouble in the first place. So they said, okay, Austria is going to be only this territory of German speakers. And all the German speakers in the Czech lands were going to remove. So there was actually a forcible deportation of Germans out of the Czech lands Hmm. um, in 1918. There was this huge population swap between what became the Slovak part of Czechoslovakia and what became the modern nation of Hungary. So all the Hungarians had to leave Slovakia and go to Hungary and all the Slovaks had to leave Hungary and go to Slovakia. Big mess. Yeah, <laughs> It taught me that there's no such thing as clean borders and trying to have a homogenous population always leads to bloodshed. This is, again, another really massive, interesting topic. I mean, I've been thinking about this with Afghanistan, obviously, as we record oh, this. Afghanistan yes. is is back in Taliban hands. And, and Afghanistan doesn't exist except as a political unit. It's certainly not an ethnic yeah. you know, unit. The same with Iraq, even the UK. I mean, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, even Cornwall sometimes says they want independence. <laughs> and it, right. it's so interesting when we cobble together different ethnic groups into a country borderline and as you say this becomes this just just resonates through the history of the country and also the people within it I mean look at the Balkans and and what happened there and so this I find this so fascinating and I mean we think um, we could solve the problem by like having inside the border everyone's the same language everyone's the same ethnicity but it never happens that way in real life so the political problem cannot be solved ethnically that I think that was more than anything else the political takeaway I got from like studying Slovakia's history and, and trying to understand why it turned out the way it did. Absolutely. And also, you know, we can have world peace if everyone marries everyone else so that everyone's <laughs> intermarried and <laughs> everyone, everyone knows yeah. someone of the other ethnicity and all of that. So uh, it, it's super interesting. So let's talk about the place itself. What are some of the interesting historical or cultural places to visit? Well, the first place nearly everyone lands is Bratislava, which is now a capital city. It actually was the coronation city for the Hungarian Empire back when that still existed. So it has a very deep and rich history. It's got a charming castle up on the hill, uh, not very exciting on the outside cathedral, though it's fairly nice on the inside. It has this super ugly communist bridge spanning the Danube, which is on the cover of my book. I I like to jokingly call it the Eiffel Tower of Bratislava. Slava. Um, nobody liked the Eiffel Tower at first when it was built either, but it became iconic. And this SNP bridge, as it's called, across the Danube is, is this iconic symbol of Bratislava. It's got a great old town, wonderful to wander around. And if uh, anyone out there has been to Prague and been exhausted by the throngs of tourists, the great thing about Bratislava is it's smaller, less well-known, not nearly as crowded, and therefore a great place to get that wonderful feel of central 
Central Europe without the uh, exhaustion of competing with the tourists. Mm. You can also go farther out into the countryside. It's it's much less built up still. There's a lovely wine road that goes through Svetiur, the town that I used to live in and continues on. Wonderful white wines from the Carpathian Mountains. There's a little spa town called Pieszczani um, that I always love to go to. There are some lovely central Slovak towns that were um, once centers of mining. That was like the first major industry in Slovakia. So, for example, is a wonderful place. And far out on the eastern side is the second city, Košice, which is also just I know all of it is just relentless Central European charm. And in between, there's lots of mountains and castle ruins, probably more castle ruins than you could possibly imagine or visit in a lifetime. <laughs> That's cool. And I'm just looking at the map here. I always like to remind myself, I always think I know where things are and then I get confused. I mean, Central Europe's difficult, the best of times. But it's, so it's got the Danube River in the sort of west corner near uh, going through Bratislava but then mostly it looks pretty mountainous with some lakes and things but it does look like mountains and a sort of uh, natural um, landscape of the country. Yeah I would say my impression still is that Slovaks are particularly passionate about the nature. They, I, I've been told they still all the people who come to Bratislava for work they all leave on the weekend and go back out to the village to work in the garden in the summer or go skiing in the winter and go hiking in between. There's lots of natural beauty there for sure. I always thought it was kind of comical their, their highest mountain chain is called the High Tatras in the sort of north central part and Slovakia that it is Europe's shortest mountain chain. So <laughs> that's a funny sort of distinction. And what would have been the tallest peak in it is not the tallest peak because at the very top, it kind of like tips over to the side and it's called Mount Crooked. And that's like one of the emblems of Slovakia, this, this mountain that would have been the tallest if it hadn't screwed it up right at the last seconds. So I love that. <laughs> That is very cool. I, I quite like a short mountain range. <laughs> Not much of a, a mountain climber myself. But you and I share a background in theology, although yours is much more comprehensive. So what is the religious side like in Slovakia? And are there some places you'd recommend visiting as a person of faith or like me, someone who just loves architecture? Yes, I mean, of course, there's tons of wonderful churches to look at of all kinds. Um, Slovakia is still is is a fairly religious place compared, especially to the their Czech neighbors. Who the Czechs are often considered the most atheistic nation in Europe, and Slovaks are among one of the most religious ones still. But so any church you go into will be great. But the best ecclesiastical architecture in Slovakia is the wooden churches. And these are churches that were built entirely out of wood without any nails at all. A lot of them are Greek Catholic. So that means um, they observe the Eastern Orthodox type liturgy, but they are actually part of the Roman Catholic church. So they're often called Greek Catholic. It's kind of a confusing term. Mm -hmm. And a few of them are Orthodox. And the ones of my own Lutheran tradition, these were actually built at a time when Lutherans had just barely been granted legal toleration. They were not tolerated at first for a while. But then when they were legally tolerated, the rule was passed under this thing called the Articles of Chopron, which said you can build churches as long as there is no metal in them. And that meant no nails. And it was supposed to be a clever way of preventing any churches from being built at all. But instead, they kind of did a, a Lincoln Law 
logs. Do you know what those are? You know, interlocking log type things. Mm, they yeah, built yeah. entire enormous wooden churches without any nails. And there's one in particular that I love. I talk about in my book called Sveti Krij. It means Holy Cross. It was originally in a valley that the communists were going to flood for a reservoir, but the people convinced the communists that they should rescue it because it was an example of folk art. And although communists were down on religion, they were big on folk art. So they actually, the communists paid to remove this all wooden church from the deep valley and put it up on the hillside. And it is enormous. It can seat like 5,000 people. It has a soaring roof and it's all made of wood. There's no stone, no metal or anything to hold it up. So you can go to, you know, just type Slovakia's wooden churches and you will see just how absolutely beautiful and just the engineering of them to be so spectacularly built and so spectacularly beautiful at the same time is really inspiring. And I, again, I'm just Googling as you're talking and that <laughs> it is a world heritage, it is a UNESCO world heritage site or the Carpathian mm-hmm. wooden churches. So mm-hmm. that's really, really cool. I did not know about that. And that's why I love this show because I learned, <laughs> I learned these, <laughs> these new things. So you mentioned the communists there. Do you still see parts of the communist history in the country? Oh, absolutely. And most of the time, unfortunately, it does have a kind of accident at the side of the road fascination for it. But for example, in Bratislava, you have this iconic, weird SNP bridge, which kind of, do you remember the, the cartoon, The Jetsons? Yeah, you know, yeah. They lived in this like circular house. Yeah, it kind of looks like something out of The Jetsons. So on one side of, of that bridge is the beautiful Castle Cathedral Old Town. But on the other side is this neighborhood called Petrzalka. And it is just like one ugly concrete high rise after another. It's It was all built post-war to solve the housing crisis. But now it's emblematic of that kind of just soul-destroying communist architecture. And everywhere you go, you will still see those kind of buildings. There's been, you know, marvelous reconstruction and renovation since the communist period ended over a little over 30 years ago now, but it still is definitely on the landscape. And you can also sometimes see the environmental impact. I remember seeing just like open mines and slag heaps left over. Environmentalists were among those who protested communism most loudly because of the, the damage that was being done to the earth and in attempt to to keep up its very inefficient economic system. That's interesting. When we were in Hungary and my husband's family originally come from Hungary, what was interesting is that some of the sort of older Hungarians, some of them thought fondly of the days of communism. And yeah, yeah, that's always, that always is fascinating to me. Is it, did you get any of that sense or, or was it sort of glad, glad it's all over? Yeah, I think when I lived there, we were the first town out from the capital. And so I think that was the first place opportunity and good schooling came. So people were very forward looking there. But I have distant relatives who live in the center of the country. And even though they were clearly benefiting and rebuilding their homes and starting new businesses, they would talk about Zlati Komunismus, golden communism, darling communism, and how much they missed it. And, you know, it was because you, you had no freedom, but you also had no chance to fail totally. You had that, that security of stasis. And to suddenly go from, you know, nobody excels, but nobody falls out of the system to suddenly you have freedom, you have competition, you have democracy, you have possibility, and you have no like cultural or personal training and how to take advantage of the opportunity. It's terrifying. And a lot of people were just going to get left behind in, in the new way. 
Plus the fact that there was no small amount of corruption in the transition process. The uh, the first premier, Mechiar, was sort of a notorious kleptocrat. So <laughs> it wasn't like they instantly got like a true democratic process or they instantly got um a fair and open markets that competed freely for the good of the consumer it was definitely like, oh, sure, you're my crony. I'll sell you off this national business cheap and then you can do whatever you want with it. So uh, that probably had a lot to do with the people's fondness for the old ways, where at least, again, no one was going to fail totally, even if nobody was going to excel or be free. Yeah, it is. It's so interesting. Communism has pros and cons, just like capitalism has pros and cons. And it, it always feels like we we don't learn our lessons from history. But let's yes. coming coming back to the uh, you mentioned the wine road earlier, which I'm obviously excited about because <laughs> I, I do like a glass of wine. And you do have some recipes in the book. So what are the regional specialities in terms of eating and drinking if people should visit? Well, across the country, the national specialty is called Brinzava Haloshki, which means these little dumplings they are kind of like Italian gnocchi uh, made with potato boiled. And then you top them with brinza, which is fresh sheep cheese, only to be found in Slovakia. You really can't create this dish outside of Slovakia. And then with uh, slab bacon cut up into little bits and fried. And of course, all the grease poured on top. You would never drain off and waste any of that wonderful bacon grease. So needless to say, you need to drink it with a lot of wine and you will still feel it weigh heavily in your stomach afterwards, however delicious it is. (laughs) But in my book, as you mentioned, one of my recipes is from what I call my, my relative Marcus communist industrial version of this, which she made with just flour only dumplings and laughing cow cheese instead of the hard to come by sheep cheese. And it's not a bad facsimile, I have to say. But again, <laughs> you'll you'll definitely want to have some white wine to uh, to cut the load. Other than that, I mean, I, I love Slovak food. Lots of things are made with paprika, uh, much like its Hungarian neighbor to the south, like goulashes and stews of all kinds. They make wonderful sweets out of poppy seeds and walnuts, like filled rolled cakes with walnut or poppy seed filling or little cookies or whatever, uh, all kinds of sausages, all kinds of sauerkraut dishes. Uh, my mother once participated in a pig slaughter <laughs> that was where they like boiled the head to make head cheese and use the rest to make roasts and bacons and sausage and sausages and everything. So I would say that you can certainly get good restaurant meals there, but if there's any way you can get invited into someone's home and preferably a home that has big garden garden and a wine cellar, then you will really get the best of Slovak cooking. That's the way to go. So is it is it on your mother's side that you have ancestry there? My father's side. My oh, father's okay. Side. Yeah. So but your mm-hmm. mom decided to go join in the well, the we all moved slaughter. there and she she loves to cook. And so she was just all in. In fact, I've been bugging her for years to to write a cookbook because she just she knew all these amazing kitchen ladies and collected recipes from them firsthand, stuff you will definitely not find in restaurants. So I hope someday we can get that down for posterity. Oh, yeah. And I read the wine there is is also the Tokai region, which is obviously part mm-hmm. of Hungary as well. And we certainly enjoy Tokai. But the other thing we had in Hungary was the palinka, the sort of <laughs> spirit. Oh, do, yes. they have a, do they have a spirit? 
they do have palinka and they but i think more popular in slovakia is slivovica which is distilled from plums you can just get a faint whiff of plum it's mostly just fire water that burns right through you they also make a version of that from pears called pruskovica and interestingly my maiden name hinliki is a corruption of slovak hnilitski which refers to the pear that is so ripe that if you wait till tomorrow it'll be rotten but if you use it today you can make pruskovica out of it so i obviously am descended from a line of these fire water makers. That is awesome. What a wonderful <laughs> heritage in your name. I think I'm so mine, proud. Yeah, that is really good because mine pen is like a hill. It's really boring. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's fascinating. So is there anything else that you love about Slovakia that people might find interesting? I think it's just so overlooked and forgotten. And, you know, even though I had the family connection to it, it wasn't until I tried to write this book, this memoir of the year that my family lived there in the year of its independence, so soon after communism and having this idea I was making a homecoming to my ancestral lands. But it just became this sort of perfect window through which to see the whole course of European history and all the layers of invasions and empires, all these questions we We talked about at the beginning regarding language and politics and religion and how they all overlap with each other. I got reconnected to specifically how my own religious tradition of Lutherans, they were really always a tiny minority in Slovakia, but were so important for its history. The first feminists were Slovak Lutheran pastors, wives and daughters. I thought that was really cool. So I just think it's not your usual European story. And yet at the same time, it is like iconic of the whole complex history of the continent. And also, I bet it's cheaper to travel than some of the more famous, in inverted commas, European countries. That is a bonus too. I will not deny yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to ask, like, right now, as we speak, you are in Japan, uh, but you say in the book, you think of yourself as a New Yorker. So how do you embrace what's different about a culture while still retaining your American side? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you really know your own culture or nation until you leave it because it's just everything around you is normal. And it's only when you exit that you can say, oh, this is really specific to my country and my my people. And so, I mean, the kind of the joke on me in this whole book is going to Slovakia thinking I was a Slovak, having spent my whole American upbringing thinking I was truly a Slovak, and then getting to Slovakia and discovering they all sure thought I was an American and not a Slovak, and finally realizing I am an American and not a Slovak. It's been three or four generations now. I am not a Slovak anymore in the, in the truest sense. But then that is part of being an American is this double identity of where your ancestors come from and where you are now. So I think for one thing, it, it helped me figure out how to strike that balance of being truly an American and yet having a heritage elsewhere. But also I think getting out of America let me set aside the maybe superficial aspects of American culture I really did not like mm -hmm. and able to embrace more deeply the things that I, I truly value about it. It's, it's traditions and commitments to freedom of speech and freedom of religion and the kind of entrepreneurial spirits. And just, just we have a limitless sense of possibility. And it can seem obnoxious when you're in the middle of it and in a constant state of competition. But I've spent time in places where there's much more of a pervasive sense of despair and impossibility rather than endless possibility. And given the choice between the two, I'd much rather be in the competitive space of endless possibility than in the despairing space of no possibility. 
Oh, me too. That is, uh, and I love that about the American spirit as well. And it's so interesting that often we can only appreciate a place when we leave. I feel the same way about about England and the UK because I spent eleven years in Australia. Oh, that's New- right. Yeah, yeah, in Australia and New Zealand, and we moved back here a decade ago now, and it feels. We, when I talk to people, even my family, I'm like, gosh, we really appreciate our country a lot more than they do because Mm. they haven't left. And it's almost like when you're in it, you take things for granted and you don't see how good it is. I mean, (laughs) and and there are a lot of good things and the media sometimes (laughs) makes it not seem that way. But there are a lot of good things about our countries, about the UK, about about the US, aren't there? Yeah. yeah, And And I I think the false the false praise of your country also comes from never leaving because like mm. it's kind of a joke the uh, the Americans who are like USA number one you don't have the flags <laughs> up and they've never even been to Canada <laughs> it's like actually I think America really is a wonderful country but I'd find it much more convincing from you if you actually left for a while and found out exactly what you mean when you say that yeah oh, that's interesting so tell us why you're in Japan and and how that <laughs> kind of fits into your traveling self Yes. Well, I love Slovakia so much that year I lived there. I wanted to stay forever. And then I didn't, I came back to visit my my family during college, but I never lived there again. And then once I grew up and got married and had a kid, we moved to France and we lived there a long time. And then that kind of ran its course. We decided it was time to move back to the States. And we really thought we were going to stay there. And for about two years, my husband was on the job hunt. And then literally the only door that opened was one to Tokyo. So we came here just three years ago now. Andrew, my husband, is a professor at the Japan Lutheran Theological College and Seminary. And that was the job we came for. But then in the process, they asked me if I would be willing to take up the job as pastor at the English language congregation of Tokyo Lutheran Church. And I'd been a pastor, you know, I was ordained long before, but I spent about 10 years in academic work of theology rather than uh, congregational or pastoral work. So I wasn't particularly looking to get back into it. But thought, well, if the door opens, you might as well go through it and see what happens. And so it's been really great. I, I really love the people here and the work I'm doing. And I still find Japan pretty bewildering. We had no <laughs> background in Asia before we came here at all. So everything was from scratch, including the language my husband teaches in Japanese. I'm way behind him in language study. But yeah, we're just kind of taking it in the spirit of adventure. Like, here we are. And it seems to be a good thing. Our 16-year-old is flourishing here. So why not? Yeah, I love that. I think that's a good way to do it. I mean, I I haven't been to Japan. It was on my list before the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's so hard to get in now. There was even a question if we'd be allowed back in. And we're only allowed back in after a visit to the US this summer because we're long-term visa holders, still no tourists allowed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully within a couple of years, I mean, <laughs> I it will, uh, the world will open up again. But it, my husband's been a number of times and it's a, it sounds fascinating place. I really want to write a book set there. <laughs> so, well, I will take you for a green tea if you ever make it here. I hope. Oh, you excellent. I will take you up on that. So of course, this is the books and travel show. So what are some books about Slovakia or travel memoir or whatever you like that you would like to recommend? 
So one of the reasons I wrote my book is because Slovakia is so underwritten about in the English language. I looked, there is really not very much out there. So the only real recommendation I can make is a very famous book called A Time of Gifts by Patrick Lee Fermore, kind of one of the great travel writers. And he has a chapter on Slovakia towards the end of that book, uh, passing through it in the late 1930s. And that's quite delightful. My other recommendations are not Slovakia related because like I said, there isn't much, but these are are a few other travel books that I absolutely love. I mentioned that I lived in France for a long time, and there's a book by Graham Robb called The Discovery of France. And this was another one of those eye-opening books for me because it's this wonderful portrait of how France became France. And to us, it seems self-evidently like France is France, but actually France is an empire of a bunch of little regions. Like nations are basically empires in in miniature. And so they actually had to go and like pull in the people people from Britannia and from Languedoc in the south and Provence and from Alsace, which is where we lived, and like force them all into becoming France and French. And that was really accelerated by Napoleon, actually, who had this unifying vision. So that book will really take a country that you thought you knew from like croissants and Paris and give you a sense of how extraordinarily regionally diverse it always was and in many ways still is. Another book I love is Vermeer's Hat by Timothy Brook. And what he does, it's really cool. Each chapter takes a painting by Vermeer that has some element from outside the Netherlands. So it might be a hat made from beaver fur from Canada or porcelain from China or a painting from Japan. And this is Vermeer's time. So this is the 17th century. And so what the the author does is he talks through all the ways in which Dutch culture formed around its relationship with foreign cultures. And again, this was totally eye-opening to me because I always thought like what was truly of a culture is what came from, you know, its territory, its own land, you know, like, so if it's Dutch, it has to be like wooden shoes and Gouda cheese, right? (laughs) But actually what makes something what makes the Netherlands what they are is also what they have selected from their relationships to Indonesia. And for a long time, they were the only Westerners allowed into Japan and their other relationships with other countries of the world. So I think that's really eye-opening too. And again, instead of having this like pure internal authentic version of a country, a country is also what it selects from the outside world to bring in and incorporate. And if you just think about the fact that you can't imagine Italian food without tomatoes, but tomatoes are a new world product. There were no tomatoes in Europe before 1500. That gives you a sense of how much today's cultures are defined by what they've taken from the rest of the world. I also would beg anyone who's only seen the movie out of Africa, please read the book. It's so much better. I'm sorry, Robert Redford and Meryl Streep, but really (laughs) the book is so much better and it is not primarily about the romance. It's this just stunning story of loss. I mean, in the title, Out of Africa, she's writing in mourning as someone who has been left. And it's so wonderfully complicated because she was there as part of the colonial forces, should not have been there. Lots of bad stuff happened there. And yet she loved Africa so deeply and wrote this book out of the wound it left in her soul to be taken away from it forever. And the relationship with the man that the movie is all about, I mean, that's just kind of like the final loss in the whole chain of loss, but her writing is just exquisite. And I've actually only read it once. I don't think I could ever go through it a second time, but for anyone who really like wants to have that, that complicated sense of what it means to fall in love with a place and also one maybe that you shouldn't be in, it's just extraordinary. 
Mm. And my very last recommendation, I would be remiss not to mention the fact that my husband is also an accidental travel writer like me. He wrote a book called Here I Walk a Thousand Miles on Foot to Rome with Martin Luther. And it tells of the pilgrimage he and I took in 2010, recreating the footsteps of Martin Luther as he walked from central Germany to Rome before he became a famous uh, reformer. And since we're Lutherans, we thought it would be cool to try to recreate that. And we had all sorts of things go wrong, including the fact that we left from the wrong city and in the wrong year. But that is actually part of the story. So you can <laughs> take a look at the book to find out why we we av- avid Luther fans got it so terribly wrong. Oh, no, those are all excellent and a diverse recommendation list. Thank you for that. (laughs) So where can people find you and your books and your husband's books online? Sure. You can find all my stuff at sarahhinlickywilson.com. That just has everything that I do. And um, the press that I started to publish, I Am a Brave Bridge, is called Thornbush Press. You can find it at thornbushpress.com. And that will lead you to Brave Bridge and my other projects as well. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Sarah. That was great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.